Take a network break. Welcome to 2023. Help yourself to a fresh new batch of virtual donuts. Uh, since it's the start of the year, we thought we'd try something a little different for today's show. So instead of tech news, we're going to speculate on some trends and ideas that may be relevant in the coming year. Guest speculator Ethan Banks from the Pack of Pushers is here to help. We're going to talk about the outlook for IT spending amidst the current economic uncertainty, open AI, network automation, and more. Before we get started, I'd like to invite you to join the Packet Pushers on January 23rd, 2023 for a live stream event on the future of DPUs and infrastructure sponsored by Dell Technologies. We're going to talk about how DPUs accelerate workloads, what network engineers need to know about DPUs, operational and business benefits, and more. You can sign up now for this free online live stream at packetpushers.net slash live stream. And last but not least, check out some new uh, Packet Pushers podcasts on the Packet Pushers network, including Kubernetes Unpacked. It's our newest show. Dives into all things Kubernetes, including how Kubernetes works, how it integrates across the infrastructure stack, including networking, storage, and visibility, tools and services to make Kubernetes easier to use and deploy. You can find it at packetpushers.net and subscribe. Also check out Heavy Strategy with Greg Farrow and Jonah Till Johnson from Nemertes Research. Greg, you can tell us about that one. Yeah, Heavy Strategy yeah, is where we try to look at the strategic issues of managing, designing, operating IT infrastructure. So if you're uh, into the enterprise architecture, and that's where the money is, let's face it, we all if you want to be in that, there's good money in being an enterprise architect. And what we're trying to do is talk about those sorts of issues from a strategic point of view, market moves, technology moves, how do we organize things and things like that. Now, the thing to note about both these products, both of these podcasts, is that Kubernetes Unpacked and Heavy Strategy are both not part of our full feed. So you won't see them unless you go out onto the podcast network and explicitly subscribe to them separately. We did that because a lot of people indicated that the the full feed was full. It was just too too much content. (laughs) (laughs) So we decided to put them on their own feeds. And it would be great if you could go out and uh, add those to your podcatcher and then download them and listen to them at your convenience. And don't hesitate to send us your feedback about them. And indeed, this show, The Network Break, Go to packetpushes.net slash FU, where you can tell us how we FU'd. I mean, follow up. Follow up. Uh, t- give us your follow up. Tell us what you think about what's going on, how we can make it better or worse. Okay. Give us positive and negative feedback. Uh, and we'd love to hear from you. All right. So let's dive right into our conversation looking at the year ahead. Uh, I think we should start with the economic outlook for 2023. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I'm sort of hearing or picking up from the financial press a lot of murmurings of a coming recession. And we're seeing tech companies laying off workers after the hiring binge during the pandemic. Uh, But Greg, you found a note from the financial analyst Jeffrey Nodder at Jeffrey's that has kind of a fairly rosy outlook for IT spending in 2023. He's looking at uh, year-end financial reports from vendors such as Cisco, where they forecast the coming year, and they're not really anticipating a significant slowdown in enterprise IT spending. I think this is important for us because most of the people who would be listening are into enterprise IT, and the wider economic outlook is pretty grim. And some people are way out on the, there will definitely be a recession in the US and Europe, and indeed most of the world this year, and it's going to be fairly steep. And there's people sort of sitting all the way back and saying, somewhere in the middle saying, you know, the the central banks have got control of this. Inflation is already dropping. Um, Yes, the house prices are are moving a little bit, but that's because there's a credit crunch. So, you know, we often talk on the network break about the wider economic picture because that affects you personally as a career. And that also affects the businesses that you work for. And you need to sort of be bringing that to work because if you can show you're aware of the economy, you're actually demonstrating business value. So we sort of try and bring some of that into the show without talking about it exclusively. And Jeffrey's here is particularly focused on the enterprise IT market in this division. Um, They're high-end analysts, and um, they're sort of highlighting that Cisco earnings suggest that nobody's slamming on the brakes. Cisco's saying that they expect their earnings to continue to go ahead 4 to to 6% of growth, which sort of would suggest 
that Cisco doesn't see any downturn in enterprise IT spending. Now, it has to be said that Cisco is no longer a networking company. It's very much a diverse IT supplier, or at least it wants to be. It's moving into a number of adjacent markets, notwithstanding you know, servers and uh, cloud-hosted services, uh, monitoring tools like... Thousand Eyes. Yeah, Thousand Eyes, Duo for identity management, and, and various other tools out there, AppDynamics for application monitoring where it's embedded in the development cycle. But we're also seeing the same thing come from companies like Juniper. Extreme posted very good results. Companies like Fortinet and Palo Alto have done very, very well in the last 12 months. And they're predicting some slowdown, but I think some of that is related to the fact that security is coming off the boil. So their share prices have been run up on the basis of a boom in cybersecurity or an expectation of ever-growing profits in cybersecurity. And there's been a bit of a reset in cybersecurity. Maybe we could talk about that later if we get time. Um, so the challenge here is to understand that, you know, if you're working in enterprise IT, I'd expect things to be pretty much business as usual. There's not much of a downturn. That does not mean that the company that you work for may not necessarily be cutting back. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I see what you mean in that we anticipate uh, enterprise companies needing to continue to refresh their equipment. They're probably mm. still dealing with uh, all of the trying to get new gear in after the long delay based on all the manufacturing shortages we've seen because of COVID, uh, which may be helping these uh, vendors mm. have a rosier outlook for 2023. Yeah. Ethan, do you have a they, comment? There, there's a bigger concern here, though. Um, not a bigger concern. There's a different way to look at this whole thing, which is there is a great deal of uncertainty. And Greg, you highlighted this. Mm. A lot of folks, a lot of the pundits in the financial space, they're not all agreeing on where we're at. There mm. seems to be a general consensus that there's going to be a recession of some sort. But but, but, but for me, me, one of the things I've picked out of a lot of these stories that have happened over the last couple of months is it is industry specific where we're at with this recession thing. It kind of is like housing, right. Interest rates have gone up through the roof. Mm. Housing prices, people trying to move houses, they're still too high. They haven't priced in the fact that mortgage rates have climbed so much. Yeah. And so housings has fallen off dramatically and that's bringing things um, you know, back as far as inflation goes in a, in a positive direction. You know, On the other hand, you've got energy doing uh, very well. Mm. You've got... Uh, natural gas making its way into the European market, uh, despite the war that continues between Russia and Ukraine, uh, and and you know changing things in a positive way that wasn't really anticipated. New pipelines being built in uh, in America, you know, for example. So there's there's a lot of things related to the pending recession that I think may come down to industry specific whether or not the recession is going to affect you, particularly companies that have raised money at very low interest rates and have been burning cash to do things. And they're now going to be borrowing money at three to five to to 10% interest rates as the market changes. And they're going to struggle. That's why we've seen such a clawback in tech companies. A lot of them have been raising money at very low interest rates, one to 2% um, and using growth-based models. So instead of paying investors a dividend you know, or a, an interest rate, they've been paying them in shares. And, you know, the expectation that the shares would go up and that's going to stop. So a lot of tech companies are going to crash or have crashed already, you know, 60, 70%. Like Tesla has lost, you know, $750 billion in value because people are saying, well, people are going to stop buying Teslas because they have to take out loans instead of, you know, that sort of stuff. $750 billion in imaginary value. But yes, yeah, I know what you mean. (laughs) That's right, yeah. But I think there are a couple of things to think about. Um, in the US, if you didn't get a 7 to 8% pay rise last year, you went backwards because that's the inflation rate there. In Europe and the UK, if you didn't get a 10% pay rise last year, 
you lost out because the the cost of inflation is something in that order. If you're not getting pay rises in that sort of order, you should be thinking about moving jobs because that's the only way you're going to get a pay rise. Or go back to your employer and say, you know, okay, you're going to give me a you know a one percent or a two percent, something like that. The, that is not on the cards here. The the cost of living is up seven to ten percent depending on where you live. You should expect a pay rise to go along with that. If not, time to move. You know my theory on that: move <laughs> and don't ever stay. Although I will say it seems like a, a less, uh, this is definitely a more risky environment to sort of start making demands and uh, looking to yep. change jobs given all the layoffs we're seeing in the tech sector. So I don't know if uh, employees, technical employees have the same leverage yeah. that they used to say two, years ago. I don't think people ago. being laid off from, you know, VC startups around San Francisco and New York really have much impact on enterprise IT. They just don't have those skills, right? <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> Amazon and Salesforce aren't VCs, but, uh, you know, VC yeah, startups. but, but you know, but most I, of those people are institutionalized victims of software development. So we don't think mm. they're going to suddenly turn up in enterprise IT jobs. Yeah, I, I think another thing that's factoring into that specific, uh, being able to secure your job and write your own ticket, remote work is becoming the expected. I read a really good article mm. the other day about how remote workers that are Top of the class, they're the best, the really desired high top talent skill sets can demand work from home, which does give you a lot of job opportunities that you wouldn't have. So maybe you, you don't have mm. to move, uh, Greg, as you were pointing out before, if mm. that's true. Yeah, there is this mo movement we're seeing back towards the office, but for the top talent that demands it, they're going to be able to get the jobs they want by just saying, no, re remote work is a priority for me. And if you want me, that's that's the price of admission. Yeah. Worth thinking about anyway. So just be aware of what's actually happening around you because that affects your career. Generally, it looks like most companies are continuing their spending. Uh, whether that means that your headcount's going to be cut or not in your industry, who the hell knows in your specific circumstance. <laughs> uh, my advice is always be nervous and be ready to jump. Always have a resume ready and be ready to move on. Not that any of this matters anyway, Drew, because uh, chat GPT, that's going gonna, that's gonna to take over all our jobs pretty soon, I think. <laughs> You hit the transition for me, yes. Uh, AI and ML were definitely a hot topic in 2022. Tools like uh, Dolly and ChatGPT, uh, they both came out of a startup called OpenAI. They showed off some impressive parlor tricks, including the ability to write code snippets. So I'm curious, do we think, is ChatGPT a tool that could actually be useful to tech people, or is it more just sort of a fun game? I, I think it's showing you, the. I think, two things. Uh, one which is obvious and one which is non-obvious. One is that it's showing the direction of the future. So it's a more practical demonstration of AI in a, for executives. So if you've got a boomer executive who's still struggling to use Microsoft Excel or, you know, still printing out emails, <laughs> something like ChatGPT is going to open their eyes as to what the future looks like when you get it to start, you know, writing emails or uh, requests for, you know, proposals, <laughs> you know, requests for vendors to, or, to quote on a product or something like that. Or it's just going to confuse and yeah, frighten either them or, more, but yeah. Uh, because if you're, and, you know, if your job is, you know, writing reply letters and stuff that is going to be automated by chat gpt and so forth so from that point of view um it's a lot easier to demonstrate chat gpt to those sorts of people than it is to try and show them ai and mist for example or some sort of ai ml operations tool that's accelerating the velocity of change in an it environment does that make sense um the challenge for me is going to be how do we detect errors so if people start using this to write, you know, this type of technology and we know that chat GPT spits up errors on a fairly regular basis. The real skill here isn't using chat GPT or any of these AI tools. It's detecting when there's an error. When do they come up with the wrong conclusion? When is what they wrote a gibberish? 
And that, for the time being, and certainly for the indefinite future, is the key. People will use the tools, and your job will actually be to go, hang on, that's gibberish. We can't use that. Yeah, I mean, case in point, Stack Overflow, which is where users can ask coding questions and get coding help. Um, the Stack Overflow, they temporarily have banned answers generated by ChatGPT for a couple of reasons. One, because there is a high rate of inaccurate answers that still manage to sound convincing. And second, the huge volume of answers coming in are swamping moderators and the community's ability to actually vet and verify correctness. So mm. yeah, that's exactly right. That I think ChatGPT's greatest skill is that it sounds good. Uh, and then the effort comes in decipher yeah. is it really right i think of it as like a fart in a room it's kind of like somebody <laughs> farted but nobody owns up to it and if you've got the talent to identify who the fart is that's kind of a skill right? <laughs> you've dressed that metaphor really far but you got farts in and that's important yeah you do so <laughs> <laughs> what a way to start the year so the question would be why are some of the answers inaccurate and that is because of the 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 training model ChatGPT has no idea from a, <laughs> if you were to compare its artificial intelligence to human intelligence, it doesn't have the reasoning ability to understand how it is mapping what it learned in the model to an answer. It's it's more of a predictive mm -hmm. algorithm uh, based on uh, past results and future results, that sort of a, a thinking process. So the issue comes in, how do you train the chat GPT on the knowledge domain that's interesting you to you to make sure that the answers it's generating are completely accurate and uh, if you're you're interested in this, I'm going to be chatting with uh, Ryan Booth. Drew, I think you're on that show too. Yep. And uh, he he's a, a network techie comes uh, software developer who's been digging into AI in great detail. And uh, we're going to be chatting with him on heavy networking about that and how to actually make use of chat GPT and uh, open AI in general. How is it useful to us if it isn't completely accurate? And how do we get it accurate mm. and all that stuff? He's got a lot of thoughts, so. Look for that later in, later in January that's coming up. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's not too far away. I think one thing to differentiate is that there's this general purpose AI, which OpenAI and ChatGPT and Dali represent, which is you type in a sentence and they have to derive context completely from the sentence that you're in, as opposed to the sort of AI we get from Juniper or, you know, or others, um, which is very narrow. Mm -hmm. So if you start typing networking questions into that AI – it understands context because it's all about answering networking problems. Like if you say to, you know, Mist, if you could use a CLI context for that, you know, if you say, can you generate me a VXLAN conf configuration for this, this, and this, it's going to be much more likely to be right than chat GPT. Okay. So don't make the, the mistake that this looks like this, therefore they must be the same. I do not believe that to be the case. You do need to understand that the more tightly you focus your AI on a specific thing, the more accurate it becomes because the models that ChatGPT uses are unattended. It just goes out and sucks in data and just draws conclusions. Whereas the ones that we see in commercial AI, if you like, which is where you buy it from a vendor, is uh, curated and manually delivered and the content that's in the data lake is selected. And quite often, actually, it even comes from you. Do you remember we talked about this three or four years ago when this first happened? All of the source data actually comes from your network sending logging data up to the vendor's clouds, which then analyze it for conditions which feed into the AI. Right, which helps one 
generally improve the AI for everyone, but you in particular. Yeah. So that's one of the benefits mm -hmm. of, of contribute that information, assuming they're handling it correctly and, and anonymizing it and so on. Yeah. As someone who pays attention to language, I have been impressed with chat GPTs. I think you know, sort of fluency uh, and, and writing skill, it's, it's an impressive because I know that natural language uh, can be tricky for AI and ML. So uh, I was impressed by that. And I wonder if we'll see people adopting it for tasks that require a little bit of fluency for, and maybe for some tedious writing that maybe technical folks don't like to do. I, I saw a Twitter thread of someone who decided to use ChatGTP to write their year-end self-reflection, uh, which I know a lot of people find tedious and silly. Uh, and they, they shared the output that ChatGPT gave them, and frankly, it kind of read like what you'd expect from one of those year-end self-reflections that you have to hand over to HR Standard for them to verbiage. check the box. Yeah, yes. yeah. So, <laughs> yes, if, you gave me a... You know, you gave me a bag of problems and I solved them, you know, it's kind of like. <laughs> so if there are, you know, hurdles like that in your day, maybe uh, this could be useful for that uh, as a general purpose uh, conversational bot. It's also one thing I want to comment here and something that I've tweeted this out this morning and got a quite a strong response. Um, this same tool that you see in ChatGPT is what's being used by WebEx and Teams. And they're actually in their license, uh, people who own corporate versions of this, are using this to track what you say and then drawing out analytics of what's being said on conversations and then producing reports to HR and executives on employee sentiment. Are the employees happy? Oh dear. Uh, if you're talking with a customer on these products, are the customers happy? Are they generally making happy sounds and happy words inside of those calls? And I hear rumours, but it's not been – I haven't heard this confirmed yet – but I also believe they're using these tools to watch for people who are doing uh, interviews with other people and tracking these conversations and sending them to HR. So be very careful. This technology does change some of the way you do things. If you're going to go for interviews or talk about your job and whether you're unhappy with so-and-so or whatever, don't use the company platform to do that. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's my nightmare. That sort of uh, employer <laughs> surveillance of, of your sentiment. And you, you don't have enough happy points this quarter. We need to use more happy words in your, in your Slack message, please. Take this pill. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> can't wait for that. That's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. Head over to the break room and get your standardized medication, please. <laughs> <laughs> Take your productivity pills, everybody. <sighs> Greg, you seem too happy this month. Maybe it's time for us to give you more work so you're unhappy. Uh, before we hit the break in a, in a slightly related topic, you know, uh, the past couple of years, we talked a lot about uh, data center automation being driven by things like intent-based networking, AI, ML. I feel like th the intent-based networking terminology sort of fell off the radar in, in the second half of 2022. Are, I'm curious to get your guys' thoughts on what do we see about uh, the drive of AI and ML in data center automation for the coming year? From my point of view, I think there's a few things here. First of all, we saw the emergence of the model or the digital twin, as it's now known bit of a change in marketing words. We've seen digital twin come around, which is, of course, a model abstracted from the network. Uh, that, to me, is fairly standard across all of the, the automation tools. They have a model outside of your network that's a model of your network, and then they are able, because that model exists, you're now able to do AI ops and, you know, or network operations or network automation because you can use the model in the software to be able to know what to do next, whereas before they started off with like what was basically a bunch of scripts and so forth. I think intent-based networking is kind of given away to this AI ops thing. So AI ops is intent-based networking. I want to do this and AI will begin to start to do some of that for you. And you can't really have intent-based networking and AI ops at the same time, I feel. I think it starts to be a bit of a clash, do you think? Or they're just sort of different names for the same thing, which is essentially providing as much automation to get the outcomes that I had wanted at the outset. 
But yeah, there are different techniques for doing it. So yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, but until we get to the point of standardizing how we deploy our data centers and networks, I think the this technology is always going to have somewhat of a challenge. The success of it's going to come when you can train the model on a significant enough specificity that it knows what you've got and then can react to what you've got because it's that predictable. You've standardized how you've done that deployment. If all our networks are deployed topologically and architecturally like Snowflake's, AI ops is going to be challenged because of that, I feel. Yeah. And it comes back to what I said earlier. My, my whole point around AI ops is Centaur, what I call a Centaur. That is, you, you know, the Centaur is the idea that there's a horse to do the hard work, but a human guiding along. And I see AI as the horse part of the Centaur, and there's always a human taking responsibility for actioning the AI suggestions. And that's where we'll be probably for a few decades, I suspect. So the the goal here is to make sure that the AI ops is correct and that you understand enough of the algorithm to be able to know whether this is doing the right or the wrong thing. And then detecting those errors, right? Detecting to have the to have the, the human key. in the loop there is it mm. defined great, but it also kind of sucks because what our networks do <laughs> tends to be so much yeah. the same from business to business that uh, it feels like if we all did get our heads around standardizing all of that, you could just deploy it like Lego and off you go, um, you know, build yes. your network. I do th- and, and I do uh, think but, but one no, of I the things I completely about- agree with you because of that, we, yeah. I... Although I find the Centaur model a bit disturbing, Greg, the way you put that, I think you're <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I might argue you're saying I have to think of a better metaphor. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very Greg metaphor. Very Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I think also the other part here is that we've talked a lot about AI ops as a straight up configuration, but what we're seeing through 2022 is the emergence of monitoring and visibility uh, and observability, which is the three levels of, of visibility tooling. <laughs> Uh, you know, or or knowing what's actually happening in the network. I think that becomes more important. And I saw a survey from Viavi this week. Uh, they do a once a year 2023 state of the network report where they go out and survey a bunch of people. It's always been good information. So make sure you try and find that and get a poke at it. Uh, but the, they said the top five issues it was in monitoring networks was off-premise networks. So what people are saying is they don't have any visibility into the the cloud networks or their SD-WAN or their branches. And that's their, you know, all of those outsourced networks are currently not being monitored to the point where they want to be. And they feel that that is the number one priority for 2023. All right, we'll have a little bit more conversation coming up, but just a pause to remind everybody about our uh, talking about the future of DPUs and IT infrastructure at the Packet Pushers live stream event on January 23rd, 2023. DPUs or data processing units are special purpose hardware. They run in servers to accelerate network security and storage functions. DPUs are creating new opportunities and challenges for your distributed architectures. You can learn about DPUs and their impact on infrastructure and operations at our live stream event, which is sponsored by Dell Technologies. We're going to have six technical sessions hosted by the Packet Pushers on topics including what network engineers need to know about about DPUs, how Dell's integrating DPUs into hyper-converged infrastructure such as VxRail, and how VMware's Project Monterey brings a software environment to DPUs so you can run virtualization, storage, security, and networking services. If you're curious, you want to hear more, sign up for this event uh, taking place via Zoom at packetpushers.net slash livestream. It's January 23rd. One more time, sign up at packetpushers.net slash livestream. Okay, so the next topic uh, for 2023, I keep hearing murmurings of workloads being moved off the public cloud into the private cloud. Uh, Do we really think this is happening? And if so, what's driving it? Are we going to see it accelerate this year? It's happening and it's pretty straightforward, I think. Um, you know, Greg, you can you can disagree with me in a minute, but I think this is pretty pretty easy. This is a topic that's come up on day two cloud that I record with Ned every week a lot. Uh, It is money. It is really straightforward as that It, it is money. 
And as, a, as one of the interesting drivers here is in order to get cost efficiencies in the public cloud, you need to have retooled your application such that you are cloud native so that you can take advantage of what the cloud and the way cloud public cloud services are structured. If you haven't done that and you're basically using your public cloud instance as a data center, you know, it, I did it this way in my data center. I'm going to do it the same way in public cloud. You're paying too much. And so, OK, it, you, you now it's been a few years and you realize that you're like, man, these costs are never going to come down. I can't retool. It's just it's too hard. It's too logistically challenging, whatever it is. And people are beginning to move those workloads back as a result. At least that's one scenario. There's some other scenarios, too. But the big driver does seem to be cost. I can do this more efficiently, have things more under my control if I just do this the way I did it before. And I don't know that people are doing it in their their own data centers or facility as much as like an Equinix or a SuperNAP, you know, where they're, they're yeah. coloing. Yeah. Um, and doing their workloads that way. But but yeah, that is a thing that's happening. Uh, and now it's funny, you know, five years ago, there was so much talk about, oh, we're moving to public cloud because it's cheaper. Now the talk is we're moving out of public cloud because it is so expensive. That seems to be the thing that everybody knows now is just how pricey and spendy it is to run your workloads up in the public cloud. So that that's that's my quick take there, Drew. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you for slightly different reasons. I mean, first of all, I don't like the term cloud native sort of reminds me of like Biggles books when I was growing up as a kid that was sort of vaguely racist, you know, like island natives <laughs> or, you know, American natives. And now you've got cloud natives. So it feels a little like, you know, touch of that. So I always get a bit of a cringe on, but maybe that's just me. Um, I've read a, been participating in a number of forums with VCs out of Silicon Valley in New York, and they're all highlighting the fact that effectively what's happening is a lot of investor money is flowing to AWS and Azure. And it can easily be reduced as a general rule. But a lot of developers are all over it because they say, I've got tools and I don't have to worry. I just go and, and effectively mm. what they're doing is blowing up investor money. And I think it, you're going to see a real focus on this. Remember, we talked about how the cost of money has suddenly gone up. So, you know, the, the point here is that if you just borrowed $100 million from, an you know, got an investment of $100 million and that person is expecting at least a 10% return because that's the cost of the money, now, all of a sudden, you have to deliver 25% returns to the investor so that they can make a reasonable return. That's a big ask. So right? you're saying that VCs are telling their startups not to use public cloud because it ends up being too expensive, which wastes more of their money? Is that, that what you're saying? Yeah, they're actually going to them and saying, look, your burn rate's too high. One way would be mm -hmm. to move off the public cloud. So a couple of blog posts I've looked at. Um, there's one company here that I've never heard of, Get Connected, and they moved uh, off the public cloud and they dropped from a million dollars a month to 200,000 a month just by moving. Now, they didn't, yeah. my understanding is that they didn't move to uh, an on prem, you know, bought their own racks, racked up their own, you know, bought servers from whomever and racked them up. They moved, probably moved to a, a bare metal provider like Equinix or, you know, Vulture or one of those companies. And they still outsourcing the actual server infrastructure and more importantly, the network infrastructure, like bringing in, you know, 10 or 100 gig internet connections is actually quite challenging. So moving into a bare metal provider, and it would have to be pointed out that these companies are already, as Ethan says, cloud native. They are using software automation, using DevOps, using CICD, and really they don't need to be on AWS or any of the public clouds to do that. They can actually do it on Kubernetes fairly straightforwardly. If you want to build a PaaS or a SaaS, if you want to build a serverless type architecture, you can do that. You can, yeah. Yeah, that's that that is that is one of the game changers right now, Greg, is yeah, that um, yeah. you the things that you used to have to rely on public cloud to provide you those APIs that let you do the magic and let you automate it all and infrastructure as mm -hmm. code and pipeline and unit tests and all of those things. You can do that 
on-premises now. That That is a hmm. thing, though, that tooling is there. Part of that's Kubernetes. Part of that's uh, Terraform. Part of that's, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of different tools that are coming together that allow you to provide the same level of service you had in public mm-hmm. cloud, but do it on your own infrastructure, however you want to define own infrastructure. Now, another point yeah. worth making here, that story that you referenced, the uh, levelup.getconnected.com and how they reduce their mm. spend uh, from a million to 200,000, that was specific to their workload. I forget, I've read that story, but it's been a couple of months now. Um, yeah. And yeah. that their workloads were such that uh, it really was, a, was a, a big game changer for them to be able to move that onto. And I think they did go to a lot of bare metal. I forget if they were doing some kind of uh, machine learning or what it was, but as I recall, it was very CPU intense and they were mm-hmm. also moving a lot of data around. And a lot of the times that's what is eating up your dollars at public cloud. Yeah, and that's not is, value is add. those egress charges. AWS, is, AWS or Azure is not adding anything if all you're doing is CPU and networking between a couple of VMs, right? <laughs> you know, or even 100 VMs or 1,000 VMs. You know, you'd be better off doing. And we're also seeing the emergence of micro VMs and also the emergence of WASM, W-A-S-M, which are mm-hmm. new technologies which can replace containers for a lot of things and very much for serverless type stuff. And we're also seeing people do Kubernetes on OpenStack so that you're avoiding the cost infrastructure around VMware if that's your thing. You know, there are advantages to having Tanzu where you're doing containers on top of VMware. But, you know, Red Hat's got a great little business around uh, OpenShift which is Kubernetes on top of OpenStack. And a lot of companies are heading down that path as well. So by avoiding subscription licenses, they're actually saving a great deal of money as well. So a couple of things then. Does this mean we'll maybe start hearing more about private cloud, which is a term I haven't heard in years now that if we're talking about repatriation or people having to make more careful decisions about you know sort of cost versus velocity and so on, which is what the public cloud would say? And do we anticipate the public cloud providers, if they're seeing significant repatriation, maybe think about how they price their services? No, well, the public clouds don't need to reprice their services. There's still enough suckers out there who aren't going to (laughs) move. There's just too many people who've bought into the fashion trend of must be in the public cloud, I've got to have it, you know. If there's people out there still buying Yeezy sneakers for whatever reason, then there's enough dumb people out there to buy cloud because that's the fashion. But I do think the stories around, you know, cloud migration, what did somebody say to me the other day? Cloud is a wonderful place to fail and an expensive place to succeed. Or something that I, I, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> Terminology wise, Drew, I don't think the term private cloud really ever comes back. It's going to remain as multi-cloud. That's that's the term that's going to be there. And that's going to be the, the, the ubiquitous marketing term going forward. Because even if you're repatriating workloads, it doesn't mean you're abandoning public cloud entirely. There's still going to be those use cases for it where it makes sense or where the tooling and processes is right or where the cost isn't a big factor. And it just makes sense to leave those workloads there. So it's going to be multi-cloud. Um, and now it's just the complexity of connecting all those, all that infrastructure in a way, so the uh, in in a way that's manageable and homogenous and, and and so on. So the multi-cloud networking providers and folks with the solution there have got a a long runway ahead of them for marketing growth, in my opinion. I'm calling it now uh, MetaCloud. MetaCloud is going to be a thing. Don't. don't oh, no. I was going to go with. Not. I was I was going to go with transdimensional networking or multi-dimensional network operation. Cloud operation. It's not mega cloud. It's not going to be super cloud either. Let it all go. No, no. <laughs> multi cloud. Just that's enough. Let's stop and move on. If you if you if, uh, if you want to monitor your on prem, your uh, your colo, and your public cloud stuff, you're going to need meta cloud. I'm just saying. You know, come on, <laughs> I, I could live with the idea that AWS and Azure is now heritage cloud. That that would amuse me greatly. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> legacy cloud. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
right. A couple more topics before we wrap. I uh, hope you're, Lee, we're, you're having as much fun as we are. Um, security, it's always a big deal. Uh, do we see it being as big a deal this year as it was last year? Uh, you and I have talked about this a lot, Drew, throughout 2022, about how cyber insurance has changed the market among other factors, right? Um, and <laughs> I might actually so the, argue that the market has changed cyber insurance, but go ahead. <laughs> Both. Cyber insurance came in and a lot of companies outsourced their risk to cyber insurance, saying cyber insurance will fix it. And what we're now seeing is that companies that give cyber insurance are pulling out of cyber insurance or strictly limiting what they will pay out for, effectively making cyber insurance not worthwhile. And so we're seeing a lot of companies start to relook at their cyber, you know, their security inside of their infrastructure and that's changed the number of things. So we saw right throughout 2022 a massive boom for security vendors as they sold more firewalls and more security and more inspection on-prem, off-prem, the whole bit. And one of the interesting things we saw was security being a big deal and becoming part of everything. We always talked about security being, it has to be built into everything that we do. And everybody went like, yeah, that's a good idea, but it's too hard to do. I think we're sort of starting to see that SD-WAN and SASE is a step in that direction. We're seeing the DPU craze is going to come with the security built in to the NIC rather than, you know, and we're seeing more and more of the DevOps and the CICD start to implement security tools further up the stack as well. So what, what was interesting to me in 2022 was watching security vendors become networking companies, whether it was through companies like Fortinet bringing out SD-WAN and then adding their threat intelligence and their their security labs into it to become sassy, uh, whether it was companies like Palo Alto adding off-prem security scanning, so with their whole um, threat intelligence and off-premise scanning capabilities uh, and so forth. And Cisco, you know, going sideways and starting to build its separated business units in security and starting to weld them into a single offering that customers can actually understand and buy. And at the same time, we saw networking vendors become security vendors. So if you look at Aruba, particularly from HP, took their Wi-Fi, started adding AI to the Wi-Fi, AI ops. They went for a very gradual, slowly, slowly approach. But then they started to put threat intelligence functionalities into that. They moved their switching into the data center and so forth. So I think we're going to see networking vendors start to add security and we're seeing security vendors add networking because there is a natural synergy between there as well as all the other things we need to do in security about you know, desktop security, remote access, remote working, you know, constant identity, zero trust. Mm-hmm. I think that that whole thing is a mess. I think security will be a big deal, but whether you call sec- things like identity management and zero trust security or not, that's still a bit thin, but it is a security, I think, at the end of the day. Ethan, comments? Well, security is not going to get any smaller, Drew. I mean, it's just, it just isn't <laughs> way too many stories about uh, related works. to yeah. actual loss. And, uh, and, and, and although <clears throat> companies don't seem to care too much when they get you know, violated and there's breaches and, you know, and all of this stuff. And even, you know, recently the last pass breach, you know, they just can't get it right. And here I am a last pass user going, guys, you're guys, making you're me abandon, abandon the, product the product I've been using for years because they handled it all so badly. Uh, it's really tangential to the audience that we're, we're covering here. But, uh, but no, security's not going away. It's not getting any less. We're seeing advancements in technology that... Uh, um, so, so for example, eBPF, where I can uh, have a whole new way I can tackle security by examining what's going on and flowing through my my Linux kernel, that gives me all kinds of interesting opportunities to change my security model and change how I'm doing things and where I can intercept bad stuff that's going on. 
it's not it's not going to solve every problem. There's there's limited use cases for eBPF. There's things you can't do to, with it. But my point is, that we're still advancing the art here and how things are being done, how things are being uh, tackled. There's money to be made, in other words. Mm. And if there's money to be made, I mean, you know, there's going to be yet more security vendors coming out, hyping up the next big product that's going to save us all yep. and enterprises that are going to buy it because they, they have to believe that story. And it feels like every security is a story in enterprises of, look, we have a security problem. I bought this thing that's going to help us with that. And that's good for business. I mean, it's just an yeah. easy win. It's easy to justify a security well, I, I, spend. But the other company. challenge here is the operation of security has become a big deal. I mean, I remember reading surveys in 2021, which said like the average enterprise has 350 security tools. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, that sounds a bit at large, but maybe it's real for all I know. And I think that's one of the things that we've seen is this you know, Palo Alto was once an application firewall maker, and now it's a threat intelligence. It's acquired businesses left and right. Look at Fortinet. It's moved into SD-WAN, then into SASE. It's into branches. It's got Wi-Fi. And security is a part of all those. And, I, th you know, the, the sort of that spread, and they all fit into one management platform. When you move into Fortinet, you can buy one management console that runs the whole portfolio. You don't need to have like a dozen you know, tools in the sock, just monitoring each part of your security, Fortinet will manage a very substantial chunk just from a single management console or an operational console or in your sock. I think that is where the future is. We're going to see a lot of consolidation, a lot of products disappear or just be glommed. You know, what today is a product will become a feature very quickly in the next year. My perspective, and Ethan, this goes back to your eBPF thing, is that security always finds new ways to find more information about what's happening, but the problem they haven't solved is getting you the right information at the right time to the right person. We have, in many ways, too much information. Uh, my hope is, and I don't want to get too much on the hype train, that this is where AI and ML could actually make a difference because there yeah. is so much stuff to, to hmm. sort through and figure out that maybe this is actually where AI could give us that, that centaur approach, that leg up where we have humans making decisions based on actual good, relevant contextual information. I don't know that that's happened yet, but I think that's where we need to go with security. Adding another box somewhere in the pipeline isn't really going to get you what you need. Yeah, the gains there from AI, you know, the, that machine learning. I don't like to. I like to always call it a artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, and statistical math. <laughs> because really, that's a lot of it. Is. <laughs> it's all statistics. <laughs> <laughs> it's all math, actually. But when you dig hard enough into the bottom, of it, it's all math. Math, all the scary way down. math. I must say. I mean, tensor math makes my head hurt, and I still don't understand it. So don't don't make don't get the idea that I understand it because I sure as heck don't. But I don't even get any insights. I just stare at it and go like, uh huh, gibberish. Yeah. Uh, one last thing, you know. Early on in, in the emergence of the cloud, there was a movement to, you could uh, put your sort of your, your monitoring uh, tools, your visibility tools in the cloud. Uh, there was a, initially some uh, hesitation to do this because this was sensitive information that would be going sort of off your premises and out of your control. That, that uh, objection seems to have disappeared. Do we anticipate more of this off-prem monitoring and operational stuff happening in the cloud? I, uh, that's one of the things that surprised me, Drew, if I had to be honest, was the fact that people have been very quick to say, yeah, network monitoring, network visibility, network observability, let's do all that to the cloud. Let's send our flow records off to Kentic and let them handle it. Let's mm -hmm. have our licenses for all our devices. They'll go to a local license collector and then we'll ship them all off to Cisco and Cisco will be able to monitor our license and our subscriptions for us. And people seem to have um, not objected to that substantially. There's not seen to be any major pushback. Customers have just rolled over and let their cracks and crevices be filled with this delightful vendor interaction. <laughs> And, uh, and, and seem to be enjoying it so far. 
You seem to uh, uh, object to this uh, shipping your data offsite and letting it be munged elsewhere, Greg. Well, I think we spent so many years saying you've got to have the data here, you've got to have it inside, and it's got to be monitored and you know backed up. And and yet, if you suddenly cut off people's subscription licenses to their products, what would happen? Right. Right. And yet, nobody seems to be discussing that out loud. That that's a risk to business. Where if something goes wrong with your licensing, you know, the license servers, your business could come to a grinding halt. No matter what you oh, bought. Okay. Or it's how not, you did it's it. not the mm. it's not the data being shipped off site that you object to as much as there's so much power that you are now investing in your vendor yeah. because of the ability that they have to pull your subscription license, and that that's a potentially a fallible thing. Well, I think the data is a problem too. I think that, well, the, yeah. the data is a problem depending on your, mm. your industry, I guess. You care mm. more mm. or less depending on what business you're in. But I also like the idea of going, vendor, give me a demo. And they go, here, go have a login, see what happens. You know, yeah. you think about somebody like Alkira, you can go and play with their network as a service offering, you know, and it costs them peanuts to give you a demo. <laughs> I feel like the data being there, your, 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 your logs, your whatever uh, being up in the cloud is less of an issue. If if everything else was 100% locked down and people weren't getting hammered by phishing attacks and ransomware and so on, I'd be like, okay, yeah, that's a that's a risk area, but we've got other bigger problems we need to worry about rather than mm. is some hacker going to breach, you know, Palo Alto's uh, data store and get to see my firewall logs. Oh no. Mm. Yeah. And then they take those firewall logs, put a you know, clause <laughs> in the subscription. They just that's get in <laughs> with a phishing email anyway, so they're not really going to use them. But yeah. yeah, but the vendors then get all of that data and then they feed it into their AI, and then you're they're selling it back to you, right? In I, a I, funny sort of a way, right? Which is uh, I, yes, you know, yeah. Which and customers haven't objected to that, I suppose, because they're getting value from it, which uh, is fair. Presumably, they're getting value, or at least they should be. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're hearing not, stories from people on the subscription thing. We're hearing stories from people where they're actually getting cut off from the services they were subscribed to because something went sideways, they didn't make a payment, or you know, whatever, something happened like yeah. that. And I, well, that I asked a lot that in because our Slack channel. Yeah. there is, um, you know, you, you can buy, a, you know, use Cisco router off eBay. That's got got part of that subscription licensing model, and it's set up to call home and all that stuff. It'll just keep running. You know, Cisco doesn't seem mm. to really be enforcing that. So I'm wondering how it's universal more, enforcement's gotten. Some people have had problems where uh, they've put a device on the network, licensed it, and then it suddenly relicensed itself to a different level. So, you know, they bought the gold and then suddenly it was down to bronze and features just disappeared and the device stopped working. Mm -hmm. uh, that was certainly a problem in the early days because, you know, historically Cisco does struggle to set up new things takes them three or four years before they iron out the kinks in their software and their business processes before something gets right. I think today the bigger problem is um, getting the licenses delivered as well as getting the product delivered. People are just happy to have a product at the moment. But I think once the supply chain fixes itself, maybe that's a topic, but you know, supply chain looks fixed at the back end. So the, the amount of memory being manufactured, the amount of chips being manufactured, the productions in China has smoothed out, the, the freight between the countries has all smoothed out. And yes, it's a 200-day lead time when you order from Juniper and Cisco on a 270-day average lead time, but at least they are shipping products within the lead time that they commit you to. So maybe the problem at the moment is you're just happy to get a product and licensing isn't an issue, but I bet it rears its head at some point again. Ten bucks. <laughs> Put it on the spreadsheet. Get the spreadsheet for yeah. a fresh new spreadsheet. But supply spreadsheet chain will be a story for 2023 as well. It'll, you know, we're still looking at six-month lead times as a, on average. For just about everything, and that must be frustrating for everybody because most of us got used to a two-month, maybe a three-month lead time, 
from the time that you, you know, placed an order on your reseller, the reseller placed an order on the distributor, distributor went to the vendor and got approval and certification and then, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which may tie back to that why, you know, vendors like Cisco are seeing a rosy 2023. There's still a big backlog they get to fill uh, uh, because as we work through these uh, pipeline shortages. Uh, I think the analysis has taken that into account. So that's why they're talking 46% growth and they've already looked at uh, vendor RPOs, uh, remaining performance obligations. Cisco's up to 45% of businesses now subscription or recurring based and they will have promised to grow that to 70%. So if you're not paying subscriptions yet, you will be one way or the other in the very near future because Cisco's told its shareholders that that is what it's going to do. It doesn't really matter what customers want, no matter what they no matter what the, the executives say in, in public conferences, God, I'm tired of them sitting there saying, well, we listen to our customers or because <laughs> no, that's not really the truth. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, that does bring us to the end of the episode. Thanks for hanging around with us. I hope you enjoyed uh, this chat show. We're going to be back next week with news analysis and a, and a pinch of star, uh, snark. In the meantime, uh, Greg, where can folks get more from you? Uh, I'll be hanging around uh, on my blog at ethereumod.com. I'm getting closer to rebooting it more extensively. I've been tooling around with logos and a refresh. I think I've got a new color scheme worked out, Ethan, and, and, and a new font. You'll be excited to know I've got a new I font. So, I am so excited. You have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, but uh, I'll be blattering that out to LinkedIn. I'm also trying to do more on LinkedIn, no matter how much it creeps me to be there. <laughs> Ethan, how about you? I'm on Twitter at EC Banks, and I would appreciate you folks that are uh, out there on Twitter and uh, follow me or, or don't, whatever. Just tweet at EC Banks and let me know if you're on Mastodon. A lot of people have been like, Elon, no, I'm going to Mastodon. And so I'm very interested to hear how many people are doing that and what, how, what the experience is if you're having uh, good opportunities, building community, talking to folks and uh, networking and so on. And you can also hear me, of course, on the Heavy Networking Podcast and on Day 2 Cloud, Drew. Uh, and I'm Drew Conmurray. I'm on Twitter at Drew underscore CM. And Ethan, I am now on Mastodon, also at Drew underscore CM on the Mastodon social instance. So if you're interested in checking it out, recommend it. It's easy to set up and get on board. Uh, there are a lot of techie people there. That's one thing we didn't talk about. Maybe we should have. But uh, And I'm also blogging at Pack a Person. You can hear me weekly on the Network Break podcast. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us. If you like this episode of Network Break, uh, please like us on Facebook, leave a recommendation on Apple Podcasts, or share a link with your colleagues. As always, thanks for listening. Welcome to 2023.